0: You have your Bibles Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one, as we're going to be this morning looking at really verses three through 14. Um, but it was my sophomore year in high school, and as most of you know, I played soccer, and I've got a lot of soccer stories. but uh, my sophomore year in high school, we had a spectacular soccer team. And At Ponca City High School, we set records that year for the best record ever. Um, it was a great year, and we actually made it to the state championship game. Um, yeah, it was really exciting, and we played Edmund North. Um, that was the team that we were going against. My in-laws live near Edmund North. I don't hold that against them, but... Um, We're playing Edmund North, and we go into that game. There's a lot of emotions, a lot of adrenaline. I've still, I mean, it was just an incredible atmosphere, and have never, before or since, after that, played in a game quite like that. I mean, there was fans just around the entire field. It was chaotic. It was so cool. Um, And at halftime, we were winning one to nothing, so we're up one to nothing at halftime in the biggest game that any of us had ever played in, and we were kind of feeling on cloud nine, and we started sitting there thinking to ourselves, man, we are 45 minutes away from winning Ponca City's first soccer state championship game. Um, and then the second half happened, and Edmund North had this player who was phenomenal. Um, he would go on to play at the University of Notre Dame, and he was just an incredible player, and he scored tying the game one-to-one there in the second half, and then he scored again, and then he scored again, completing the hat trick, and we lost three-to-one. And I'll never forget gathering after that game um, for the trophy ceremony there on the field, and the only thing that I could feel was discouraged, depleted, and truly I was full of despair and defeat along with all of my teammates. And I'm willing to assume that's where some of us might be today. We are for a variety of reasons, maybe political, financial, physical, relational, social, personal. But we are, some of us emotionally, physically and spiritually discouraged. I mean it has been a tough couple of years, a tough couple of weeks, a tough week even here in Oklahoma. Spiritually discouraged, depleted, perhaps full of despair and defeat. And a big reason for Paul beginning this letter with these words that we're going to look at this morning is that he wants his readers, the faithful who are in Christ, believers everywhere, especially in dark times, to feel not discouraged, depleted, full of despair and defeat, but rather he wants us to be full of courage, full of hope, full of joy, full of victory. Because of Jesus and who you and I are in Jesus. He also wants to show what that means for us now and in the future. Now, a couple of things to point out. This main passage we're going to look at, verses 3 through 14, is, mind you, one long sentence in the original text. One long sentence. Paul has a habit of writing very, very long sentences, and it's written like a poem. It's written like a song, a a declaration, in my opinion, and it's meant to strike a chord in you. This is what poetry and music does. It's meant to strike a chord in you that should bring courage, hope, joy, and victory in the midst of dark times. And we're going to break this sentence down, verses 3 through 14, over the next two weeks. And I want to emphasize two different themes of this passage. The first one this week, I want to focus on what he means by these really difficult words. Chosen, predestined, in this really phenomenal, powerful two-letter word, in. And then next week, I want to focus on the results or the effects or the benefits for us now being found in Jesus. And to look at those benefits on a smaller scale, like an individual scale, but also on a more much more cosmic scale. But let's just jump in. Look at verse 1. We read these two verses last week, but let's read them again. Verse 1, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful ones in Christ Jesus. And if you Want to highlight or mark in your Bible, if you're comfortable doing that, as we walk through this, just highlight or underline in every time you see it. The faithful in Christ Jesus, verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Verse 8, that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Verse 9, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him, glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, verse 14, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, we just read a lot, and there is a lot there. And before you and I can fully wrap our minds and hearts around what it means to be chosen in Him and predestined to be this way, we must initially highlight this word, in. Because you noticed it popped up a lot. And this little two-letter word, it denotes relationship to the Lord, it denotes purpose for the Lord, and it denotes identity in the Lord. See, remember what I've been saying these last couple of weeks When it comes to your location in or outside Jesus, your location determines identification. When it comes to your location in or outside Jesus, location determines your identification. And then identification carries significant consequences. Good or bad, depending on whether or not you're in Christ. As we're going to see in a few moments and next week. But this word in, it separates the church from any social or political group within any culture or setting in the world. You, the church, are no longer like the world. You are not meant now to be like the world. Because you are now in Jesus, and that changes everything. And Paul wants his readers to fully see and realize and recognize this mystery, what our identity in Jesus means for us in this present world or reality, and in the world or reality to come, as we'll begin to see next week. But let's just break this word in down, and I want to do it by asking a question. And this question is going to seem initially completely off topic, but this is the question. Who is God? Who is God? Now that seems like a simple question that produces a simple answer. But many of us would, if somebody were asked that on the street, we'd kind of fumble over our words and maybe kind of muddle about, you know, through an explanation. But not quite is it an easy answer. But notice, opening and closing this passage that we just read, and sprinkled throughout this passage is the mention of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, which begs the question, okay, who is God? Is he Father? Is he Son? Is he Holy Spirit? A lot of people have muddled ideas or thoughts about who is God. Well, what we have learned from Scripture, and even from the natural created world, as Paul would argue in Romans, is a plethora, a multitude of attributes that are described or that describe God. We learn that God is eternal. He has no beginning, he has no end. We learn that he is all-knowing, that he's all-powerful, that he is good and right and just. We learn that he is love, that he is the truth, that he is righteous and holy. And we could go on and on. In other words, he is perfect in every sense of the word. And Scripture reveals this to us, and what Scripture also reveals to us, as the early church basically fleshed out for us is that God is Trinity. God is, in other words, three in one. What do I mean by that? Well, he is three separate, distinct persons. One God. One essence. One substance. One nature, if you will. So in other words, you have God the Father, who is a separate, distinct person from God the Son, who is a separate, distinct person from God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. When Jesus is communicating, praying to the Father, he's not talking to himself. He truly is in this intimate, deep relationship with his Father. Now, another way to phrase this, as many people have done, is you could call them the first person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, or the third person of the Trinity. But God is three separate, unique, distinct persons, one God. Now, what in the world is a person? What is a person? What makes you a person. What separates you from that chair you're sitting in? What separates you from your house? What separates you from that dog that's sitting at your house waiting for you to come home, right? What separates you from the trees outside? What in the world is a person? Well, let's think about this on a human level, because you and I are created in the image of God, male and female, mind you. We are created in the image of God. So what does it mean, then, to be human, a person? Now, many have tried to nail this down, but there's really Three things that really characterizes a person that separates you from other things in creation. Number one is this, is a person reasons. A person rationalizes. A person has the ability to step back and to think and observe and to analyze, to ask the question, why? Why? A person rationalizes. A person reasons. Number two is a person freely chooses. So a person can sit there and rationalize between option A and option B, and a person freely chooses, not by instinct, though we do have instinct, but not by only instinct. We choose A or B. Number three is a person feels. You feel emotionally, psychologically, physically, you feel. And here's the thing. God is a person. Three separate, distinct, unique persons, one God. We were created in his image. So, in other words, God the Father reasons. God the Father freely chooses. God the Father feels. Right? He's slow to anger, meaning he feels anger. God the Son reasons. He freely chooses. He feels. God the Holy Spirit reasons. He freely chooses. He feels. This is why Paul would say, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. So, each person of the Trinity is a person, not an it, but a who. Distinct and unique from one another, yet equal with and to one another. One essence, one substance, one nature, if you will. Three in one. And all those attributes that we looked at earlier are true of one of them, they're true of all of them. And here's another attribute that many of us miss. And Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4 this. God is spirit. That's crucial to understand that God does not have a body, a physical body like you and I do. He is spirit. God the Father is spirit. God the Son is spirit. God the Holy Spirit is spirit. However, 2,000 years ago, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, stepped down into space and time in this world. And as John would summarize, became flesh, or took on flesh. The Holy Spirit didn't take on flesh. God the Father did not take on flesh, but God the Son took on flesh. And Jesus is fully man, fully God. Jesus, as we are told throughout Scripture in the New Testament, that Jesus is the fullness of deity in human form. Paul told the Colossians that. That God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in the human being Jesus, that Jesus, this human being, is the exact imprint of God's very nature, that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power, that Jesus is this word who was with God in the beginning, who was God in the beginning. Jesus is fully man. He is the son of man. It's a title that goes back to the Old Testament. He's the one we've been waiting for, the Christ, the anointed one. But he's also the son of God. As John says, or as Jesus said, he's the only begotten son of God. What in the world does that word begotten mean? Well, think of it like this. A child makes a painting. A child creates a painting. But you and your spouse beget the child. So in other words, you create or make something of a different nature than you, but you beget that of the same nature as you. Beget is a radically different word than create, and that's crucial to understand, because Jesus is the only human being who can truthfully and wholly claim, I am God in human form. He's the only Son of God, the only one who is of the nature God. This is why we worship him, even though, yes, he is a fully human being. And Jesus lived, just like you and I lived. He died, and he resurrected. He came back raised imperishable, raised with immortality, raised in glory and perfection, and so on and so forth. And then he ascended into his world. He wasn't like a balloon that just floated up and then eventually landed on the third star over. No, he left this created world and went back to his world. He ascended into heaven, but he didn't leave us by ourselves. He told the disciples, I'm going to leave you with someone, the Holy Spirit. So what happens is that Jesus then sends the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And for anyone who believes, they receive the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. The, as Paul talks about here, the deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Those who have the Holy Spirit in them, John makes it clear in John 1, are now born of God. As Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. The who you are must die. You must be raised in a new life. As Paul will talk about in Ephesians, you must now have this new nature. You're born again now if you have the Holy Spirit of God in you. You are a new creation. You have a new nature. You've gone from death to life, from darkness to life, from non-child to child status. Listen, this is really cool. This is a side note. I was telling the staff this. But if you go back to Genesis 1, you have darkness and chaos and death in the world. In other words, there's no life at that point. And then what happens? You see the Holy Spirit of God hovering over the water, hovering over the deep, the darkness, the chaos, the, the darkness, the all of that. And then what happens? God then says, let there be light. And he brings order where there was chaos. He brings life where there was no life. He brings peace and life and light where there was darkness. And then you see that same kind of thing happen at the tabernacle and the temple, and then you get to a young woman named Mary who was a teenager, and she was not holy in and of herself. She was a human being. In other words, she had the sinful human nature in her. She was utterly sinful, just like you and I are sinful, and her womb was empty. It had never had life in her. So literally you have chaos and disorder and darkness in her. And then the angel said, The Holy Spirit of God is going to what? Come upon you. It's the same kind of language to hover over. And then God said, Let there be light. And the light of the world stepped down into darkness. And then what happens at Pentecost? You see a group of about 120 believers gathering. And the Holy Spirit of God comes upon them. And then, in a way, God says, Let there be light. And the Holy Spirit of God entered into them. And as was prophesied, they got a new heart. They became a new creation now in Christ because of and through the Holy Spirit of God. And that happens every time somebody places faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit of God enters into them and God says, let there be light. This is why Paul said, you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You become a child of God. You now are partakers of this relationship of the Trinity, You now are brought into the fellowship. You now are partakers of his life and his joy and his fellowship. This is why Jesus would say in the Gospel of John that he is in the Father and that the Father is in him. But don't miss this. But then he said that you are in him and that he is in you. Now what's true of Jesus is now true of you. We're told this in 1 John. That those who belong to Jesus now have, one, overcome the evil one. They have overcome the spirit of the Antichrist, as John said, has already gone out into the world. They've overcome the world itself. You've even overcome your flesh. John said, when your own heart condemns you, there's Jesus. In Jesus, you are distinct from the world, from any other group of people, because God is in you, and you are in him. Therefore, this is why the scriptures can declare, as Paul would declare in Romans, that nothing or no one can separate you from him. Because it's no longer you who lives. It's Christ who now lives in you. This is why Jesus said nothing or no one can snatch us from his hand. Because you now belong to him. You now are owned by him. You now are adopted into his family. And this is all by grace. You are saved by grace. You sustained by grace. And you will endure by grace. It's all of God. And this changes everything about who you are. And who you are changes everything for this present world and for the world to come, despite what things might appear in the news. And this should give you courage. It should give you hope. It should give you joy. It should give you victory because this is what Paul is starting with this. Okay, so what about this word chosen and predestined that Paul uses? What do we do with that? When it comes to salvation, when it comes to being in Jesus... Do we have choice? Do we have choice? Well, let me answer that by reading this statement. Punctuation and word order serve important purposes in writing. They allow us to separate sentences. They show us where to pause, where to place emphasis in a sentence or on particular words, and in clarifying the meaning of written language. Punctuation and word order can radically change the meaning of a sentence. Let me give you some examples. Let's look at this first sentence. Most of the time, comma, travelers worry about their luggage. It's a simple, straightforward statement. Most of the time, travelers they worry about their luggage. Now let's imagine if we took away just that one comma. Same word order, we just took away the comma. Most of the time, or most of the time travelers worry about their luggage. You see the difference. You take away that one comma, we're no longer talking about people hopping aboard a plane or getting in their car worried about their luggage. We're now talking about people who are traveling through space and time, hopping from century to century, who are worried about their luggage. One comma. Let's look at another one. This comes from Dave Ramsey in the Financial Peace University. He brings this example up. Look at this statement, this statement of words, a woman, comma, without her man, comma, is nothing. You can agree or disagree, right? But a woman, comma, without her man, comma, is nothing. Now, let's just change the punctuation, but let's keep the same word order, and look what happens. A woman, without her, man is nothing. That's probably an important, yeah, that's right, yeah, Nancy, Nancy gets it, right? Yeah, that's just changing punctuation. That's all it is, is changing punctuation. Now, let's look at another one. God chose us to be in Christ. Now, listen, this is where some of you fall. This, this is what has is almost split the Southern Baptist denomination. This is a big deal, theologians throughout time, is, yeah, God chose us to be in Christ. But let's look at it another way, because this is, I think, more truer to what Paul is getting at. God chose us, comma, in Christ, comma, to be. Dot dot dot. Radically different meaning, just changing the word order a little bit and punctuation. In other words, I firmly believe that what Paul means by chosen and predestination and whatnot, that Paul is seeking to reveal this mystery, that only in Jesus are you chosen. And that comes by you believing in Jesus. And that the results or the benefits of having believed in Jesus have been predetermined since before the beginning of it all when the Trinity knew that the second person of the Trinity was going to step down into darkness. In other words, it's the results that have been predetermined, not the choice. You say, now why do I believe that or interpret this passage that way? A couple of reasons. Number one, Paul uses the phrase in him or a variation of it at least 10 times in that one sentence. And he does it many more other times in the rest of this book. And anywhere else that he or Peter or any of these boys talk about chosen and predestination, never will you and I read that you and I are chosen outside of Christ. Never. It's always in him. Never are you and I predestined to be in Christ. Rather, the emphasis is always that we are chosen only in Christ. And the emphasis is always on the benefits of now being found in Jesus. In other words, we are chosen and predestined in Christ to be, to be conformed to his image, to share in that inheritance, so on and so forth. We'll look more at it next week. But in addition to the phrase, in him or in Christ, Paul's entire context is referring to the results or the effects or the benefits for those who are now in Christ. In other words, again, Paul is establishing the grounds or the reason for our courage, for our hope, for our joy, for our victory. Again, it's the results of having believed in Jesus that have been predetermined, not the choice. See, this is clear in John's gospel. When he uses the word believe a lot, like four times more than any other gospel writer, he says in chapter one, to all who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave what? He gave the right to become children of God. And that was predetermined before the foundation of the world, that anyone who would receive and believe in Jesus would become his children. He also says in John 20, 31... I have this one on the screen. These, he's talking about the miracles in which John has recorded in his book, though he could have written more and more and more. These miracles, these signs, these words of Jesus in this book are written so that you may what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of Man and that he is the Son of God, the only human being who can take on the name as God himself. That you would believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And that... By believing, you then what? This is the result, that you may have life in, not your name, his name. Again, it's been predetermined that if you believe in Jesus, you will have life in his name. You will be chosen in him to be conformed to his image. You'll be chosen then in him to be a son or daughter, adopted in him, through him, and for him. To live happily ever after, sharing in his inheritance. And this was predetermined long before it all began in the beginning. Now, this still means that God does everything as it pertains to salvation. You and I were dead in our trespasses. Being dead, you can do absolutely nothing for yourself. And Paul would make that clear as he continues in this book that we're saved by grace. But God sends Jesus. He conquers sin and death. He's the one who calls us to receive Jesus as Lord and to thus inherit forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus. The only thing that you and I are called to do is to listen to Jesus, the one whom God loves. That's what he said at the transfiguration. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And what does Jesus say? Deny yourself, pick up your cross, come follow me. In other words, you die, I live in you, you follow me. The only thing you and I are called to do is to receive the free gift of Jesus. The only name given to us under heaven by which we must be saved. And that's our choice. That's your choice. That's simply it, to receive or reject. To receive or reject, that's it. Think of it like this. We have a, uh, used to in Ponca City, there was this Ponca Plaza Twin Theater. And as you can tell in this picture, it was a run-down little plaza theater, okay? And you would literally walk into this theater... After buying your ticket and you had movie A over here and movie B over here. Two movies. That's it. You get your popcorn, your soda, your candy, and you go to movie A or you go to movie B. Now imagine that I'm the owner. And imagine that there's a movie about to come out that I love. And it's going to be showing in movie A or theater A over here. But also imagine that there's a movie that I hate or despise or reject And it's going to be showing in Theater B. Now let's imagine that I want to reward those who choose the movie that I love over the movie that I despise. So I predetermine that those who choose that movie will receive free popcorn, free soda, free candy, a free ticket. I show absolutely no favoritism. I leave it up to the moviegoer. But location determines identification. And those in theater A have been identified by me beforehand as those chosen to share in the blessings that I have chosen to freely bestow upon them simply for freely choosing the movie that I, the owner, love. And directly, as a result, I've also chosen those in movie B theater be to miss out on those blessings. That's how it is with Christ, the one in whom the Father loves. And again, when it comes to your location in or outside Jesus, your location determines identification, and that identification carries significant consequences, good or bad, depending on whether or not you're in Christ. And we're going to look more at those blessings next week, but one of the blessings has to do with what we are delivered from. See, Scripture is clear. Those in Jesus are chosen in Christ to be delivered from something and delivered into something. Let me just focus on the delivered from something. Next week we'll look at the into something. But we should know this and what I'm talking about because there are examples after examples throughout history as recorded in the old testament that point to this fact they point to jesus let's talk about the flood those located in the ark no his family the animals it meant identification meaning they were the ones identified by god beforehand as those chosen by god to be delivered from the impending and inevitable wrath of God. This was predetermined before the event, before the time, that those in the ark would be delivered from God's wrath. Fast forward to the Passover, you see the same kind of thing. Their location meant identification. This was predetermined before the event, before the time, that those in the houses with the blood of the Lamb were identified by God as those chosen by God to be delivered from the wrath of God that was coming. Fast forward even more to the house of Rahab. You remember this, right? The Israelites marching around the walls of Jericho and everything like that and doing that whole good thing. We could sing the song, I'm sure. But beforehand, right, they sent spies into Jericho to check it out and Rahab protected them, right? And there's this promise given before the event actually unfolds. And those, Rahab and those located in her house with her, their location meant identification now. Because, as the author of Hebrews said, because of her faith, they were now identified by God as those chosen by God to be delivered from the impending and inevitable wrath of God that was coming on Jericho. If you are in Christ, you are in the ark If you are in Christ, you are in the house with the blood of the Lamb on it. If you're in Christ, you are in Rahab's house, so to speak. Location determines identification. That identification means you're no longer under the wrath of God, you've been delivered from what is coming. You're no longer darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Think of it like this. You once were standing out in the cold, dark, heavy rain, and the entire weight of that storm was upon you. There was nothing you could do to deliver yourself from it, but now, because of Christ and your location is under the umbrella of Christ, meaning you're now identified as one safe from the rain. You're now identified by God as one chosen by God to be delivered from the impending and inevitable wrath of God. But if you're found outside of Christ, and Jesus made that very, very clear, you will be swept away into outer darkness. You're not getting into the house. So the question is, how does Paul know their identification has changed? How does he know they're the faithful ones in Christ? How does he know they're the ones in him? because of their reception to the invitation that was extended to them through the presentation of the gospel. You remember what he said? He said, you also were included in Christ when? When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed. Then you were marked in him with a seal. So then, how do you know that you're in Christ? Well, it has everything to do with your reception to the invitation, extended to you through the presentation of the gospel. In other words, do you believe? Are you convinced? And I'll conclude with this. See, what what troubles me for many is that many people believe in Jesus to the extent that, and don't miss this, to the extent that they know Jesus and his life and his teachings to be true, but whether directly or indirectly or consciously or subconsciously, true within the realm of a fictional story. What do I mean by that? Well, let's imagine the Wizard of Oz. I'm willing to guess that most of us in this room have seen the Wizard of Oz Right? We know the story. We know the characters. But imagine I adamantly argued with you that there was no tornado in the movie. There was no such thing as a tornado in the movie. That never happened. Let me give you some evidence. And thus, because of that, these things never happened. And your response, you being a Wizard of Oz lover right, of the movie or something, you would stand up and defend your case. That's wrong. You're telling lies. That's not the truth. Maybe till you're red in the face. Maybe you'll even create groups and then declare and protest my declarations. But subconsciously, you would know that ultimately the story that contains these facts belongs to nothing more than imagination in a land of fiction. Don't miss this. I'm not asking, are you convinced of facts within a fictional story? You better not be reading the Bible like you do the Chronicles of Narnia. Are you convinced of facts within the reality of our world? That what we read is a true story. That when I'm talking about the Trinity and who Jesus is, it's not facts within a fictional story, it's facts in the real world. And it changes history, past, present, and future. So the question is, is, do you believe? Are you fully convinced? As Jesus would stand there before Thomas, look at the evidence before you, and don't disbelieve, but believe. So that, as John would say, that, so that by believing you would now have life in his name. Whereas Paul would say, so that then you would be marked by the Holy Spirit. But some of us, in the church at least, in the West, generally speaking, some of us are like Judas... We know stuff about Jesus. Judas knew Jesus on an intimate level. He knew certain things to be fact and real. But he was never fully convinced in here. Thus he betrayed him. Don't disbelieve, but believe. And for those of us that truly have believed, who are now in Christ... Paul opens this letter to remind you of who you are now in Christ. So that despite what you might see in the world and what you might experience personally, don't feel discouraged, depleted, full of despair and defeat. But rather feel courage, hope, joy, victory. For you are now in Christ, sealed, marked, and nothing or no one can change that fact. So I'm going to ask John and the praise team to come forward as we get ready for this invitation. And that's the question I want to leave you during this time with heads bowed, eyes closed, is are you fully convinced? Because what matters is your reception, your reception to the invitation. And if you're, living, and if you're fully convinced and you believed, then know that you have gone from darkness to light Death to life. You're his child now. You belong to him. So quit living discouraged and depleted, full of despair and defeat. We have a hope that surpasses any of this that we might face. I mean, our light and momentary joys, as Paul says, are achieving for us that eternal glory that far outweighs it all. So maybe for some of us in this time, it's just coming back to the Father and just to say, thank you. Praise to you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, for saving me, for giving me a hope and a plan for the future, simply because I'm now in Christ. But as we sing this song and as I pray, I'm gonna invite you just to Come to Jesus and just sit in his presence. Father, we thank you, we love you, we praise you. We were dead, but you made us alive in Christ. We were lost, but now we're found. We were outside of Christ, but now we are in Christ simply by believing. You've given us the right to become children Born not of the flesh, but born of God. Father, we are a new creation in you. We are the body of Jesus. So Lord, help us to be full of courage, hope, joy, knowing our victory in Christ. Lord, if there's anybody in this room truly has not believed, or they're believing in a sense of a story or facts within a fictional story, Lord, I pray that they would believe in facts, in a true, real historical life-changing story we give it all to you all praise, honor, and glory in Jesus' name that I pray, I'm going to ask that you stand with us, this time of invitation these steps are open, I'm down here if you want to come talk But you be obedient to what the Spirit's leading on your heart right now.